All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am Jay Taylor, your host, and I'm speaking to you from New York City, and this is the 30th day of July 2019. Before I talk more about today's show, let me remind you that I am the editor of Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks and that you can subscribe to my letter by going to miningstocks.com. And it is a good time to consider doing so because the gold shares, uh, especially the exploration stocks, are just now starting to move very dramatically. And uh, evidence of that, uh, not to brag, but just to pass along the information is that my personal Uh, One personal account that I keep devoted to, the mining shares, is up nearly 50% so far this year as a result of, and many of the stocks in my newsletter have done extremely well. Uh, A couple that have done very well, a couple of our sponsors, Klondike Gold and Great Bear Resources, have done extremely well uh, this year, and they are stocks that I also make sure that I own. I would uh, also like to encourage you to consider uh, signing up for Chen Lin's letter. ChenPix.com is the place to go, ChenPix.com. Chen follows some of the gold mining issues, but he is also uh, an expert in the biotech sector where he's made a lot of money for his subscribers over the years, ChenPix.com. Uh, we'll also uh, want to remind you always to uh, keep a, uh, an address in mind, and that's OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com. Michael Oliver will be with me in just a few minutes from now. Uh, I do want to thank all of you for listening, making this show one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel, and uh, please keep your comments, uh, positive, negative, or neutral, whatever ideas that you have from the show, send them along to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com, questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. And uh, in addition to Klondike Gold and Great Bear Resources, who are our sponsors, we also want to thank Novo Resources and Radisson Mining. Uh, the other two sponsors that we have at the moment for making this show economically viable. I should say, today, in the second segment, uh, Quentin Henning will be with me uh, to give us an update on the three different gold projects that the Novo Resources is working on and progressing in Western Australia. Uh, in, uh, in a week from now, uh, Chris Taylor of Great Bear Resources will be with me to update on that, which is, in my view, the most exciting gold discovery uh, of the year. And uh, Peter Tallman is, uh, will be with me on August 13th, and uh, Klondike Gold is also on to some very interesting things. I think by then we may have some very high-grade assays to report to you by the middle of August. And keep in mind that when high-grade assays come out for these, minis- for these minuscule market cap companies, they can drive the share price dramatically higher. And also with that, bring in a lot of volume into the trading 
uh, of these shares. Well, I've traded, I've um, titled today's show, What Will Trigger the Next Financial Market Collapse? Doug Nolan, Quentin Henning, as I mentioned, and Michael Oliver are my guests today. The handwriting is on the wall, according to some people. There will be another market disaster straight ahead. The fear is, among many people, especially among Austrian economists, another stock market crash could be very, uh, most, most likely will occur, and uh, it, it followed by an even more disastrous financial market meltdown than that, which was, uh, which was uh, experienced in 2008-2009. The Fed now seems to hint at a policy of proactive stimulus, taking interest rates towards zero, no matter how strong the economic data may be. And in a way, I can't blame the Fed because thanks to decades of irresponsible debt creation espoused by the apostles of Keynesian economic religion, the slightest misstep could send the stock market into a tailspin and, as I say, a reoccurrence of 2008 or something potentially worse. Now, given that the fact that the GDP, that the debt-to-GDP ratio is far higher now than it was back in uh, prior to the Lehman crisis. When I uh, speak to Doug Bug. Doug Nolan in the second hour of today's show, the second half of today's show, I should say, I want to ask him what he is watching for. What signs is he watching for a tipping point that might mark a tipping point as he manages the tactical short fund at the McIlvany Wealth Management uh, Company? Also, I want to ask him why he and David McIlvany decided about two years ago that it was time to start a shorting policy. One thing is for sure, the global economy is addicted to more and more credit at a faster and faster pace in order to keep the system from another financial mark, uh, meltdown. It's, it's not a matter of if, it's but when. The existing dollar-based system self-destructs. It is for that event that this show does its best to help all who will listen to these warnings to be ready. Quentin Henning, as I said, will be uh, with me right after the first commercial break to give us an update on all that Novo Resources is doing in Western Australia. Uh, the stock hasn't been very exciting in either direction. It's been kind of sideways, uh, and a lot of people are not paying a lot of attention to Novo these days, but I think that could be a gigantic mistake uh, given the massive scale of that project. Uh, and once they can start to prove, if they're able to prove, that this is an economic project, then I think this is going to be a story you're not going to want to uh, miss uh, miss out on. But right now, I'm happy to tell you that, once again, we're very fortunate to have Michael Oliver with me. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Hi, Jay. Always good to be back. Always good to have you. Um, OliverMSA.com, folks, OliverMSA.com. Seriously, consider subscribing to one of Michael's services. Uh, he has a lesser expensive one just for gold and silver, precious metals. Uh, but if you really want to pay attention to all that Michael does, and all these markets are related for sure, then you want to uh, perhaps look at his other subscription uh, service as well. Michael, uh, you've been indicating lately that you see the entire commodity and uh, the, the entire commodity complex starting to look very bullish. Uh, are you still seeing that? Mm-hmm, absolutely. Uh, we put out a report the other day on the Bloomberg Commodity Index, which is a nicely balanced commodity index, some of the others mm-hmm. are a little too heavily weighted to energy. Uh, yeah. And it is, from our vantage point of long-term momentum, uh, don't look at the price chart. Price chart could fool you. Uh, it is primed for a major upturn. Uh, in fact, if you look at the momentum charts in our reports, 
uh, and you treated them as a price chart, you would be very excited. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, they have not yet broken out, but we're literally 2% below the breakout numbers. So mm-hmm. the Bloomberg is just toiling right below the structures. And if it goes through, it will suddenly ignite. And these central bankers who want their inflation as defined by commodity price rises, they're going to get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Welcome to the party. Um, oh. the, uh, but what's interesting is that the technical situation on the Bloomberg, which is a, a bottoming pattern uh, on momentum, is inverse to a similar situation on the S&P on the same time scale of measurement and on the dollar. Mm-hmm. So the question is, a lot of people focus on, oh, the dollar's got to do this before I believe anything, you know, like the gold's going to go up or something. Meanwhile, gold's yeah. gone up $300 since last summer, and yeah. dollar's done zip <laughs> since yeah. last summer. Uh, and our argument is, hey, you know, don't just look at the S&P as a leading indicator of where money's flowing. Look at the commodity complex, because if it turns up, it is a further indication, gold has already led the signal, that money is moving out of obviously overvalued stock prices into undervalued commodity prices. And it's viewing it as a less risky, better place to be going forward. Mm-hmm. Which lagged to gold, but that was the case also back in the late 1970s during that great big commodity boom. Gold took off first. Mm-hmm. And it was months and quarters later before the uh, CRB index took off. Mm-hmm. But right. gold was the, was the proper leader. And, uh, and sure enough, during that time, uh, stocks were a wasteland. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody made money. Brokers' phones weren't ringing. You know, it was a, it was a wasteland. Uh, and I think we're there. I think we're about to engage. And I think these, the policy shift of the Fed recently endorsed by Yellen. So, you know, instead of Trump yelling at Powell, uh, Yellen has said, yep, do it. Okay, so the fact that the Fed is now going to join hands with the ECB and the BOJ on their easing process and uh, means it's a global trio now, I think that's going to translate into money flowing into commodities. And uh, And, I wouldn't judge what happens tomorrow, you know, hour by hour or anything like that, but I think that we're on track for a major change in the Fed joining with the others, in which case easy money is coming again, but this time it won't flow into stocks. It's going to flow into gold stocks and commodities. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of gold, uh, you know, I've seen several people suggest that well, it's time for gold to take a breather now, and maybe it's going to have a pullback. Yeah. I saw one analyst yeah. suggesting that 1380 would be a nice target uh, on the downside. What are your yeah, thoughts? Maybe. Uh, maybe, but, uh, you know, they've been saying that for four weeks, and what have we had? Uh, four to five weeks of congestive sideways yeah. action. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, during that same sideways in gold, silver has gone up a dollar and blown through all kinds of uh, trigger structures that we've defined, the highest of which was at 1605, and we're trading at 1660 today. Uh, so it's just broken out. Uh, so, no, I see no particular argument uh, that fits in any of our work that says you, you need a correction here. You want to get a correction? You go up about another $100 in gold, take silver up closer to 20 take GDX up into the low 30s, then maybe you can talk about a correction. But uh, these skeptics out there, and some of them are even gold bulls, uh, I think they're wrong. It's yeah. not the place for a correction. Well, and again, uh, you're, you know, I've been following you now for about three years or so, and I just see your... Momentum work is so trustworthy. Uh, it really uh, sometimes gets people in early, but it gets in people in at a lot lower price. For example, the gold, the gold market. Right. You've gotten people in a lot earlier, and yes, it was a little time, you know, but but a hundred bucks or so, a couple of hundred bucks, a uh, hundred and a very significant 
entry, a lower entry price, so well worth the, the wait. Um, so I, I've just seen this work with so many markets. We focus on gold on this show because that's the primary focus of this show. It's honest money. It's where we think people need to go to be ready uh, for when the truth about the dollar comes into uh, uh, into the consciousness of the markets and they start to realize that the dollar uh, Pardon me really for a minor promo. <laughs> yeah. I don't usually do this. We've got a 15-minute yes. video that we'd like to share with anybody who'd like to see it. It's just yes. me looking at charts of the stock market going back a century. And uh, we think we're sitting on a potential for a stock market decline that is on the order of something we've never seen in terms of the dynamics that have built up. And uh, it's not a price chart analysis. We look at price, but we also look at momentum. It's 15 minutes long. It's free. Just go to our website, olivermsa.com, and request uh, that video link be sent to you. And I think you'll find it interesting. Uh, and this, again, this is, it's the S&P we're looking at. But it's the, these markets are correlated. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to yes. take commodities up and the S&P up this time. We're, we're, dis- right. we're unlinked from them. Right. And uh, right. if the S&P goes down or commodities go up, it's going to have an opposite effect uh, and, and so forth. But anyway, it's an interesting little video and uh, oh, obligation. It's a, it, yes, and, and I'm remiss for not having mentioned it. I did see the video, and it is excellent. And it really uh, shows your methodology, too, Michael. It helps people to understand why you're on this show every week, whenever I can get you anyway, because I have so much confidence in your methodology. And it's your methodology. It is proprietary. So uh, I just want to thank you. Thank you for pointing that out. It's another reason to go to OliverMSA.com. OliverMSA.com. Take advantage of that freebie, 15 minutes, and you'll have a whole lot better understanding of Michael Oliver, his methodology, and why yours truly has him on almost every week. Thank you so much for being with us, Michael. And thank you, And uh, all the best to you and yours, and uh, we hope to have you back again next week. All right, folks, so we do have to go to break. Uh, don't go away, though, because Dr. Quentin Henning, the president of one of my favorite companies, Novo Resources, he'll be with me to explain what Novo is doing on their three gold projects in Western Australia. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Dr. Quentin Henning. Novo Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Novo has recently partnered with Sumitomo Corporation of Japan to evaluate, advance, and develop the company's Australian gold projects. With over $40 million in cash and $60 million committed from Sumitomo, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Great Bear Resources, trading under GBR on the TSX and GTBDF on the OTCQB, is a gold exploration company focused on their wholly owned Dixie project in the prolific Red Lake Mining District of Ontario, Canada. Recent drill results yielded an impressive 1,600 grams per ton gold over 0.7 meters near surface. GBR is fully funded to drill 300-plus holes this year. McEwen Mining is a significant shareholder following a $5.7 million investment as part of a recent $10 million financing. Visit greatbearresources.ca.
You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have Dr. Quentin Henning, the president and chairman of Noble Resources, with me once again. Noble Resources trades in Toronto under the symbol NVO. You can buy it in the U.S. as I have under the symbol NSRPF. Uh, I believe around 178.7 million shares out, uh, about $1.85 of the, uh, in U.S. money as I speak to you today giving it a market cap of around $338 million in U.S. money. Novo's shares exploded off the launch pad in the middle of 2017 from under a dollar to a peak of around $7 a few months later. The stock's rocket trajectory resulted from a a spectacular nugget discovery uh, in conglomerate beds in what is known as Novo's Caratha Project, and also uh, on the basis of an understanding provided by Dr. Henning that these conglomerate beds are mineralized throughout the Pilbara Basin over hundreds of kilometers. Since then, Novo's share price has settled down to uh, into the U.S. dollar and a half to 250 range as the hard work of determining how these very unusual gold deposits, which are characterized by extreme gold nugget conditions, can be sampled and mined profitably. While spectacular gold discoveries are easy for investors to conjure up dreams of riches, it is not uncommon for investors to become less enamored of a stock during the months and years when hard scientific work is required to turn those dreams into economic reality. Noble has three very unusual gold projects in Western Australia. Those projects are known as the Caratha Project, the Edgina Project, and the Beaton's Creek Project. Now, Dr. Henning has told us on several occasions in the past that these nugget issues render Novo's projects especially challenging. But it is my understanding that Novo is pursuing some very creative technologies to deal with the unusual nature of gold mineralization throughout the Pilbara. So I'm really pleased to have Dr. Henning with us once again to give us an update in terms of what Novo is seeking to do to overcome the unique challenges. Uh, Thanks for uh, joining me today, Dr. Henning. Thank you, Jay. You know, as I just noted, your stock really took off in the summer of 2017 on news of uh, the spectacular discovery of nuggets hosted in conglomerate rocks at your Caratha project. And that, that is a comment well on Purdy's reward. Those are two targets there. Each of, of, of the three projects that you are working on are quite different. So I'd like you to outline specific issues with each project that, um, uh, with regard to Novo, to, to talk about a little bit about how you are overcoming the challenges that are uni- unique to each. And perhaps you uh, could start out with Caratha, which uh, was the area where your stock price really took off uh, based on uh, the discoveries there. Sure, Jay. That's a, that's a good way to, to introduce the subject so I can kind of run through things and give everybody a, an update, but also talk about the, uh, the challenges and how we're tackling them. Um, the Caratha Gold Project is really what, like you said, launched us in, in 2017. The discovery of gold was made by prospectors out there. You know, Caratha is a small town. It's about 20,000 people, but there's a lot of people who like to metal detect. Discovery of these nuggets was made probably about 18 months, say, before we showed up. But people had prospecting, you know, with metal detectors in, in great numbers uh, for several 
you know, several months immediately prior to our land acquisition there. When we got there, it was just remarkable. There were little uh, dig holes all over the place, and they followed this conglomerate bed for a, a roughly eight-kilometer strike. So, you know, we can readily see that the, the gold was coarse-grained. Um, at the time, we didn't realize it was basically all coarse-grained, you know, but that's something we learned through exploration. Um what we did is we, we were aggressive with land acquisition. We staked a lot of ground. We staked nearly 10,000 square kilometers in about two and a half months' time. We also did some other deals to put the, the whole project together at Caratha and explored it in earnest starting in September of 2017. Uh, when we started opening, opening trenches, taking bulk samples, getting some data back on the fine-grain gold components, uh, we could we could also see the nuggets in situ, like we could get rock samples that had nuggets embedded in them. We we soon realized that we were dealing with uh, pretty much an exclusively coarse grain gold deposit. Uh, over the next eighteen months, we we did a lot of bulk sampling work. Uh, say last year, where we processed five to ten ton samples. You know, is it? challenge it was a challenge extracting them it was a challenge actually putting our our finger on exactly where these beds were it's you know it's not easy to see the top and the bottom of the beds in many cases so uh it was a huge learning curve but but uh we managed to effectively quantify the gold grades in in these two units so we see two two conglomerate horizons that's one of the important pieces of information that popped out out of that exercise we see one that sits right on the basement you know it's basically resting right on the unconformity with older rocks underneath then the second bed is about 12 to 15 meters above that it sits up section a little bit and we found that the gold in the upper bed was actually coarser grain so the nuggets there are usually multi-gram nuggets whereas the ones in the bottom bed are usually a, a gram or less in size but still coarse grain for for gold we've taken all the data that we've put together we did diamond drilling to collect geology uh, we've done bulk sampling to to assess the grade we've taken all that information together we actually published recently updated our 43101 report that was to complement the the work we did to put a, a mineralization report together a few months ago uh, the mineralization report as people know is is geared towards moving the project forward towards a mining lease whereas a 43101 report is intended for investors. So we put both of those out now. Everybody can see where we're at with the project. They can see the you know the challenges, but they can see how we've overcome most of those. Um, basically, the way I look at it, we're on the same track as we were at Beaton's Creek, where you know we had to do some very hard yards early on. But once we got things sorted out, we went into a trial mining phase. That's something we're looking at right now for Garatha. Uh, we're also undertaking native title negotiations, things like that. So uh, we're slow and steady, but we're we're making progress. Uh, the native title discussions have taken a little bit of time. There's been some turnover uh, in the management of the local native community. Uh, we've just found out there's yet further turnover, which is, you know, it's a little bit uh, challenging. It requires some patience, but we are making headway. And right now we're getting some clarity on which which way is the best way to go through trial mining phase? So, I would say in the next few months you'll see how that that unfolds. But let's now jump to Beaton's Creek. All right, so Beaton's Creek, I'm going to kind of go backwards in time in in essence because we're going to go and look at how we started in the Pilbara. So at Beaton's Creek, which is about 350 kilometers east of Caratha, we actually uh, started working there in in 2010 and 11. We started 
doing some bulk sampling and stuff in 2014. It took a while. It took, took some hard yards to put together the geologic model, to come up with the right sampling and assaying procedures. But we, we managed to put together, through several years' work, uh, a very sizable resource. We're up to about 450,000 ounces each of indicated and inferred. The project is now fully permitted. Uh, it's gone through, you know, trial mining phase a couple of years back. We've gone through native title discussions. We've, uh, negotiations. We've got full, full agreements on both the Balku and Namal, uh, corporations. Um, we are basically fully permitted and ready for production. So right now, Beaton's Creek, we're going through an option study. Uh, the option study on Beaton's Creek is nearly done. Um, but we are now starting to look at, at some other aspects of the, the project and how we could work on it in a bigger picture so if people recall we also have some other properties in the immediate area one of them is called blue spec 20 kilometers east of of beaton's creek we also have some properties to the north for instance talga talga where late last year we were we we, uh collected some high-grade gold samples along a quartz reef and we think that that could be a sizable target now so we're looking at uh combining everything in the east pilbara into a bigger picture uh obviously and, and we're actually very close now to, to making some decisions. So I'd say in the next month or two, uh, people should look for news around that. You know, Beaton's Creek is a, is a nugget of gold deposit. It's nothing like Caratha. It's, uh, uh, in, in terms of size, the gold particles are usually a millimeter or so and less. Still coarse grain from the gold perspective, but it's, it's a little bit more manageable. So it's good, good for us to cut our teeth. Okay, so let's now jump to Edgina. Edgina is our most recent project. Uh, Edgina, we think of as a derivative, derivative of the conglomerate gold story. Uh, basically, Edgina is a modern gravel deposit. This is gravel that was, uh, has originated from weathering and erosion of some of these older gold-bearing conglomerates. And those gravels have formed a, a sheet-like deposit over the flat country, uh, this is inboard from the ocean, say around Port Hedland. Uh, it's inboard from the ocean, but uh, not quite up into the hills where the conglomerates are still outcropping. Anyway, in this, this flat region that we refer to as a terrace, um, we've, we've got gold-bearing conglomerate, or sorry, gold-bearing gravels uh, are, that are quite interesting. The, the nuggets uh, almost certainly have been derived from the conglomerates. We can see very stark similarities between the nuggets and the gravels and the nuggets and the conglomerate. Um, what we're finding, uh, we're, we're doing work at Edgina now. We got everything up and running as far as processing goes. I was there about a week, week and a half ago. Uh, everything was running uh, pretty much steady state when I left. They're processing samples now. We anticipate getting, you know, say 10, 20 samples done, and then talking to the market about what we're seeing. Now, one one thing that uh, that we've learned in just the past few weeks at Edgina, uh, there's there's different types of gravel there. There's definitely uh, different strata or different areas with different gravels. So we're not seeing uh, just a uniform homogenous sheet of gravel. It's more there's some older gravels that appear to be that have what we call laterite associated with them. Laterite is a uh, an intense weathering phenomena where you get like a sheet of iron oxides heavy iron oxide is forming at surface. So we see some gravels that are actually capped by this this laterite, this iron oxide. We suspect that those are quite a bit older than other gravels, and those actually look like the ones that have the gold. The other gravels that we see uh, look like they cut, maybe cut through it uh, and have, you know, remobilized or pushed the gravel, the, the older gravel around. So right now we're kind of coming to grips with some of the things we're seeing there. Uh, anytime you open up a new project, 
you know, you go through a learning curve. There's just no way about it. But you have to be patient and do the hard work. Um, one of the, the bigger challenges we've had recently, um, we sought uh, heritage clearance on certain areas on our mining lease to go out and do some, some work beyond the disturbed area. Um, we've got one area where last year the gentleman who we bought the project from was doing some trench work. When we purchased the project, we, we asked him to leave the trenches open. Uh, so there's a kind of a disturbed area. Uh, we've been focusing most of our efforts in that immediate area up to date, and we've sought heritage clearance on areas around that. It's been delayed a bit to get the heritage clearance, which is a little a little frustrating, but uh, we anticipate getting that, say, in late August or early September. That'll allow us to expand our sampling and, and geologic work outside of uh, the, the immediate disturbed area. I'm a little concerned about just focusing on the disturbed area because you know, it's already been excavated uh, in, in many places. So we're anxious to get that out, out of the way so that we can do the, the harder work. Now, the uh, few things that we've got right now that are very interesting, uh, one is the, the ground penetrating radar, which is basically a technique that looks at, at the very, very shallow horizon. You know, this is material, say, down to a few meters within the surface of Earth. Uh, the ground penetrating radar does seem to work very well at identifying the gravel uh, horizon, mapping out thickness of the gravel as well as the, the actual contact of the gravel with the bedrock underneath. This is important because we suspect this will help us identify the channels or chutes or, you know, like uh, zones of, of mineralized conglomerate. Uh, it's very, very promising to date. So we're, we're excited about that. Uh, we we do have our little plant on site to do the sampling, so it's not like we're having to crush up and, and process samples like last year. Uh, these are free dig samples, you know, free dig gravels that we can put through our plant and more or less see some results very very quickly. So, uh, like I said, we'll probably process on the order of maybe 15, 20 samples, something like that, and then start telling the market what we're seeing. Uh, we we do see sizable potential. One one thing we are doing around edging is we're exploring. Elsewhere on the terrace, uh, we've got little test ground penetrating radar uh, efforts going on uh, over the, the greater property area at this point with the, the deals that we cut with the gray and we bought one other piece of ground. We control nearly 2,000 square kilometers of this terrace target. So, you know, it's a sizable area, but we're actually starting to reach out and uh, test new areas. And, and we do know there's a bit of gold in some of those. We've done a little bit of uh, test sampling on a, a small scale in some other places. So we're quite excited about that prospect. Then the last thing I'll, I'll talk about, Jay, is, uh, you know, our, our efforts on the greater property. Uh, we still have around 13,000 square kilometers under, under our includes. I mean, it's a huge area. You know, that's, you know, absolutely immense piece of ground. Much of that ground has promise for, for finding more beaten streets or Cararthus. So we've actually got two teams out at the moment, uh, one in the West Pilbara and one kind of in the, East or East Central Pilbara. They are looking at uh, an inventory of high priority targets that we identified through various uh, research efforts that we've had over the past year. Uh, they've gone out and they've been identifying, guess what, new conglomerates. Uh, they've been taking samples. You know, it is challenging to sample this and just take 
any assays you get at face value, but we are complementing that with uh, metal detecting effort. And I suspect by the end of this year, we'll probably have, you know, two or three more new, hopefully new and exciting discoveries to, to talk about to the market. You know, this is not a story that's, uh, that's, you know, limited to the three projects we have right now. We're, we're actively looking at the bigger picture. Yeah, the bigger picture in conjunction with the nuggets that, um, that became such a big story in 2017. I think one of the things that you added to that, obviously, was the was the notion that this is a huge system uh, and and lots of things to look at. I, I must ask you though, we should be getting some assays then, I guess, pretty soon from uh, Edgina. And uh, are you suggesting that perhaps now that you know there are different types of gravels that the uh, that you sampled initially might not uh, might be disappointing? Uh, I would say this. I would say we're on the edge of the terrace. Where we're located and where we're working right now is basically the area that the guys historically been able to, to get get to. Like as you go on the terrace, there's sand and stuff that covers surface, so they can't really metal detect out there. So right now we're kind of restricted to working because of the heritage clearance. We're restricted to working along the edge of the terrace in in the gravels immediately adjacent to the hill. So. I think part of the, the complex geology we're seeing with the different types of gravels relates to the, um, the proximity of the, the terrace or this location to the hills. Uh, what we think uh, is that the older gravel, that, that one that's capped by a laterite horizon, is actually the one that has the bulk of the gold in it. And we do see areas out in the, the terrace proper where, you know, you get away from the hills where you can see laterite capping over a, a big area. So, uh, you know, right now, I, I'd say it's a little early to say when I left about a week and a half ago, they were just starting to, to get up to speed processing and, you know, we'll call it more or less steady state. It does take them about two days to put a sample through. So they put the sample through over about a 10-hour period. Then they have to go through a complete clean-out where they have to clean everything from one end to the other to make sure they didn't, you know, they, they, they capture all the gold. So it takes them uh, another day to get all that done. So I'd say, you know, 10, 20 samples, something like that will probably take another two or three weeks, something on, on that order. Uh, in the meantime, I'm hoping to, you know, update people with a, a little bit of the detail of geology that we're seeing on site rain. All right. So just in summing up then, uh, the drivers that I see uh, based on what you just told me is that we should be getting some information, obviously, from, from Edgina in terms of these the, the, these samples. Uh, the heritage clearance is a big deal then, as I understand it, because it will allow you to get to the areas where you have greater uh, potential, as you see it in Edgina. I guess you're also going to be giving us some news then as well from, from Caratha, too, in terms of uh, trial mining results and some samples. Uh, we'll give news regarding where we're going to head with trial mining there. Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I, I think, uh, and, and are you well-funded to take you through the rest of this year? We, we, yeah, we sure are. We, we've still got about $45 million in the bank. Uh, we've, you know, because of the relation we have with Sumitomo, that's helped reduce our spend uh, on as, as a company and as a whole. Uh, you know, a lot of the money that's being spent at, at Ed, Edgen right now, for example, is coming out of the Sumitomo uh, Earn and Joint Venture. Um, so we're, we're well-funded. We anticipate being able to use this uh, this money very effectively now to, to make Beaton's Creek, you know, and, and Edgina and, and Carrotha all work together. It's kind of like ha- I've said in the past, kind of like having three horses out in the out in the race, and we're we're kind of 
looking at which one's going to hit the finish line first. But my bet, you know, Beaton Street, given how advanced it is, will probably come in first. You know, imagine if things work out for us in the exploration front, that one could be uh, a second. I would say Carrotha is going to be a track much like Beaton's Creek, where it's going to take, uh, you know, take three, four years to get up to uh, to a level where we feel confident looking at a commercial mining scenario. All right. Well, as you know, as, as I said, it's a little bit like uh, this. Uh, what I say is sort of the boring phase of a development of a project, and you have three projects, but in the end, it's all based on developing a project that's economically viable. And I know you're working extremely hard toward that end. So, uh, Quentin, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us again. All the best to you, and I hope we can get an update sometime in the future as well. Thank you. Alrighty, folks. Well, that's uh, all the time we have for this segment. Don't go away, though, because Doug Nolan will be with me. He's the portfolio manager of the Tactical Short Strategy at McIlvaney Wealth Management. He's going to talk to us about what he thinks could trigger the next financial crisis. Not a happy topic, but one that we should be aware of as much as possible. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Doug Nolan. A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon Territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike Gold Rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corps. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions taylor at gmail.com that's questions the number four taylor at gmail.com now back to our program Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have Doug Nolan back with me on this show. Uh, I think it's uh, the second or probably the third time that Doug's been with us, not often enough in my view. Uh, Doug is currently portfolio manager for the Tactical Short Strategy uh, at McIlvaney Wealth Management. And uh, before that, Doug served as senior vice president and portfolio manager of Federated Equity Management Company overseeing the Prudent Bear Fund and the Prudent Global Income Fund. Uh, before that, Doug uh, served, actually, uh, or actually was the portfolio manager for the Prudent Bear Fund while it was owned by uh, David, uh, David W. Tice and Associates. Uh, David Tice, of course, has been on this show a number of times as well, and he's someone we should get back sometime soon, I think. Anyway, Doug, um, he has, has quite a background as a uh, in the area of uh, shorting the markets and various markets, and uh, his background before that, his academic background in accounting, he's an MBA from Indiana University. Uh, so we're really glad to have him with us again. Thanks for joining me again, Doug. 
Well, thanks a lot for having me, Jay. It's nice to be on the show today. Yeah, it's really great to have you. I've I've admired your work, and and I must say that uh, you know at the at the Malcolvany Wealth Management site, uh, you provide a weekly uh, a weekly page there that's very extensive, a, a weekly uh, commentary of the markets, and anybody who really wants to drill down and understand a great deal of details and and the logic behind. Um, you know what you're thinking. That's a good place to go. Um, you know, it's just you and David uh, McElvaney started this tactical short uh, shorting business about two years ago. What did you see then uh, that caused you to think it was the time? Because certainly we don't want to be short the market over eight or seven or eight or nine or ten years. Um, that can be disastrous. But something that you and David saw that caused you to believe that it's time to get back on the short side or start at least looking at the short side? Sure. Um, You know, I've been writing my uh, credit bubble bulletin now for for 20 years, and Mm -hmm. I'm convinced, and this is following cycles now for, I've been in the industry now for 30 years. Uh, I'm convinced, I think, you know, David and I see things similarly. Uh, We're at the very late stage of what has really been a multi-decade bubble. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I... Back, uh, you know, during the technology bubble, that's when I started writing the bulletin, and then uh, that bubble burst, and I thought that was the big bubble, but then, you know, in uh, 2002, I had to change my tune, and I started warning about the the, uh, mortgage finance bubble, Mm -hmm. and when that bubble burst in in 2008, I thought that that was the bubble, but no, they reflated again. Uh, In 2009, I started uh, warning about the unfolding global government finance bubble, I've called this the granddaddy of all bubbles. So, you know, I think this is, uh, you know, the, just setting up for just a great opportunity on the short side. But David and I, what we really wanted to do is to create a product, a, a better product to try to help uh, people preserve their wealth, to help hedge some market exposure, um, do things differently than some of the other short products. And we just, you know, we think it's a great opportunity. We didn't think the market would go up another, you know, 25, 30% after we started the product. Right, right. But that's just, you know, we think it's just created a better opportunity for us going forward. What are some of the differences between the tactical short strategy and some of the other shorting uh, strategies that are out there? Sure. And I, my experience on the short side goes back to 1990. I started uh, with, you know, basically short only hedge funds. Mm-hmm. Uh, back then, the model was, you know, we did better research on individual companies than than Wall Street would. Uh, these kind of large concentrated positions, and you wait for them to work. Uh, you had a lot of confidence in your analysis. Well, what happened is, uh, you know, the, the central banks kind of changed the game. The Fed changed the game, created a lot of liquidity, and, and the bubble started in the 1990s. And, and that really changed the risk-reward of being short individual stocks. So I kind of learned that the hard way in the 1990s. So what I try to do is I try to be tactical with our short exposure. Uh, today, for example, we're, we're not looking to short individual company stocks because we think the risk reward of being short stocks is 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 very high, or very you know the risk is very high. Uh-huh. Um, so we we. We don't want to be 100% short all the time like most short products, so we vary our short exposure, and importantly, we vary the composition of our short exposure. Uh, we'll use some options in, in uh, sectors and try to stay out of trouble, try to avoid short squeezes, and, and, and be opportunistic 
when the environment for shorting is more favorable. Uh, Doug, do you see, you mentioned a multi-decade short, and of course, if you go and look at the uh, uh, at a chart of interest rates going back to 1981 or so, you know, each of these bubbles ends up with lower rates of interest, such that we are now at zero bound, even negative bound in, in Europe. Um, how much further can this thing go? Could this possibly be the last major uh, bubble collapse before, before there's a new monetary regime of some kind, do you think? Uh, yes, and when the technology bubble burst, 2000, 2001, 2002, uh, the policymakers used mortgage credit to reflate the system and, and you know, encourage mortgage lending and, mm-hmm. and hedge fund leveraging and mortgage-backed securities and derivatives. They, they were encouraging all of this to, to help the system reflate. Well, uh, that just created the mortgage finance bubble. Then when that bubble burst, then they came with central bank credit and sovereign debt. That's why I mm-hmm. refer to it as the global government finance bubble. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of the end of the line as far as there's, you know, once you get to the heart of the, the, the foundation of finance, sovereign debt and central bank credit, there's no place to go afterwards to reflate from there. So we are at the, I think, the final stage, although you know, they can use QE to whatever extent they decide to. And, you know, they're already talking the ECB, you know, not many months ago into their QE program, and they're already talking about starting it up again. So it is the end of the cycle, but central bankers obviously are, are, are ready to, you know, do whatever it takes as far as they're concerned, right, to keep, keep the game going. It's just a very dangerous game. Yeah. I know Jim Rickards, who we've had on the show, talks about uh – the only the last place to go would be the IMF, uh, and that they would be the only bank, the only entity that would be ready and a- available and able to bail out the banks, the central banks around the world. Um, and that would seem to me to suggest perhaps a new monetary regime of some kind that might be in the making. And um, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Well, I think going forward, it's going to be very difficult for for nations to come to a consensus as far as to how, how to deal with these problems, right? Uh-huh. That's one thing with the 2008 crisis, right? Central bankers kind of, you know, they, they, they got together, they, they had one strategy, the governments were all for this, this uh, concerted effort to reflate. It's not going to be so easy next time. I also think the scope of the problem here is so much larger than 08. Mm-hmm. If you think back to 08, the first QE program, the first trillion dollars, it basically didn't even add any liquidity to the system. It just accommodated shifting leverage from from hedge funds and, and some of the banks and Wall Street firms to the Fed's balance sheet. Wow. Yeah. Well, I think the amount of leverage, speculative leverage globally is is so much beyond 2008. So we could get into a situation where the first few trillion of QE uh-huh. just go to accommodate you know, deleveraging by by you know the the speculator community. Uh, so I think the 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 scope of the problem is is much beyond what what the IMF can deal with. Uh, and, you know, we'll we'll see how it plays out. But I I don't look at the IMF as being any savior for the global financial system. Interesting. Well, it's, it just leaves one to wonder how things will will shake out uh, when that fateful day arrives. Uh, I guess uh, we have to. Well, what what would you say to people then? What do we what do we need to do? I want to ask you more about shorting, but 
But it, looking at the situation now, I mean, not everybody can short. I suppose a lot of people can short through a fund, um, if people of modest means. But uh, just in general, I guess people definitely need to stay out of debt. They definitely need to have cash or or gold or something that will retain its value. Because do you see, Doug, the prospects then of of a hyperinflation at some point in time? Because of what we've seen so far with these collapses, these bubble collapses, is the opposite. We see, you know, we see massive collapse of markets, which leads, uh, at least for a short period of time, to collapsing prices before they start to reflate them again. But what, what do you? How do you see this thing working out overall in the end? Yeah, and and there's a lot of factors here that we're just going to have to follow over time to yeah. try to stay on top of this. Yeah. I would argue that we've had hyperinflation. We've just uh-huh. had it in, in you know, financial uh, global, assets, financial assets, global bond prices, uh, yeah. you know, a lot of stock prices. So we've seen the hyperinflation. The problem is central bankers, right? They're trying to inflate this general price level, and right. they believe if they inflate this general price level, then the you know debt excess doesn't matter because you can always raise a general price level and and devalue your debt. Asset bubbles don't matter as much because you can always inflate corporate earnings and the price level to to like to make uh, asset prices seem more reasonable. So they're in real pickle right now because they do aggressive monetary stimulus and and it leads to you know bigger bubbles, higher asset prices. And the general price level barely budges, right? So it's another indicator that we're we're, we're late in the game. And, and you also throw out um, because some of this might sound extreme when we're talking about mm-hmm. you know that, that central banks may need a few trillion of QE just just to sustain the system. Well, I think that is exactly what global safe haven bonds are telling you. That's what the German Bund at negative forty basis points mm-hmm. is telling you, right? The Swiss bond at negative 78 basis points. Wow. That's, you know. These bond markets are telling you that central that the central banks will be out aggressively with more QE. So I think there yeah, there's some reasonableness to that view, right? They they see the same. A lot of sophisticated market operators see the same fragilities that we're talking about right now. And so it's not some crazy idea. It's something that I believe is already being discounted in the bond market. Mm-hmm. Stocks stocks play a different game, right? They, you know, you know, why worry about the long term when you can make 35% year to date in the semiconductor index, right? It's a mm-hmm. short term trading focus. Mm-hmm. And this divergence is not unlike what we saw back in late, you know, 2007 when you know, U.S. equities, even in the face of the, you know, the eruption in subprime went to all-time highs. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the bond market in late 2007 was saying, wait, something's not right. Bond yields were collapsing in anticipation of, you know, aggressive monetary stimulus. Mm-hmm. Doug, uh, where do you see the greatest shorting opportunities right now? I and mean, what are you looking at to, to, make, to profit from? Or does that change day, day by day and week by week? Well, right now, uh, the focus is just being defensive. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, we're not out there. You know, we're, we're just trying to provide a, a hedge without getting our heads taken off, right? I see. And I also want to say that I, I strongly encourage individual investors to avoid shorting because mm, yes. you know, they can get caught in, in not appreciating the risk. You know, stocks oh, sure. can double or triple on you. And I think if you know if you're going to be short, find find a professional 
mm-hmm. some type, you know, a fund or something. Just avoid it yourself because uh, it, it's it's really tough. Yeah. You know, so we're waiting. We're waiting to see a tightening of financial conditions. There's a you know a mosaic of indicators that we follow pretty closely, um, but you know there are opportunities uh, uh, you know throughout the market. Uh, some of the greatest excesses are, are even in defensive areas where people think they're they're buying safe stocks. Obviously, the technology area. Uh, I think the bubble in in technology goes you know beyond significantly beyond uh, 1999. So there, there is no shortage of opportunities on the short side, but on the short side, timing is so critical. And yeah. there are points in the market where risk control, risk management, that, that is the focus because mm-hmm. things can go a little nuts. Things can go crazy at the end of the cycle. We saw it, you know, with, if you remember back, Jay, that, you know, yeah. technology stocks did their parabolic in the uh, first quarter of 2000, even in the face of deteriorating uh, fundamentals. They did that final melt-up before the collapse commenced. So it's not unusual to see what we're seeing in the marketplace, where it turns really speculative right before uh, payday on the short side. Yeah, I, I, on June 12th, I'm just reading a uh, a quote from you. Is you said, "I don't believe the primary impetus be- behind the global central swing towards additional stimulus is economic. Indeed, I see Powell, uh, Draghi, Carney, Kuroda." And the like confirming the acute global financial fragilities thesis. So you you think these these guys, these central bankers, really are scared of what they see, and that uh, we're likely, as I understand, uh, to see a, a bit of a rate cut tomorrow, a quarter quarter percent perhaps. But do you think the central bankers are really frightened with what they see? I absolutely believe that, and and. In December, uh, I think it was December 19th, the FOMC meeting, they raised rates. And the belief was you know, that the, the economy was sound, the markets were sound. And about two weeks later, they abruptly reversed that with the, you know, with the Powell U-turn. And, and that's because the markets were unwinding rapidly at the end of December and the first few days of January. It mm-hmm. was, for me, it was amazing how quickly you could see things unwind and you could tell that there was a risk off and deleveraging and and problems uh, unfolding in the derivatives markets. So yeah, the global financial system is an accident in the making. Uh, you know, China is an accident. Uh, you know, one of the greatest bubbles in history. This whole proliferation of ETFs and, and different derivatives that you know people think they're, you know, they're they're liquid when in fact they hold securities that, in a difficult market environment, it would be very you know difficult for them to sell them. Uh, so yeah, I think central bankers. They, I don't think they probably appreciate the degree of fragility, but they have a pretty good sense that uh, you know they're, they're they're they've got a difficult job to try to keep these markets uh, stable. All right, with just about two minutes left, Doug, I'd like to uh, get back to this issue of inflation, uh, deflation. I know, as an Austrian um, a thinker, you see inflation as the creation of money, money excess money supply, or money that's created out of nothing. Money is uh, that when it's created, that is inflationary, right? And so you see the inflation going to the financial assets. So do you see then an implosion of financial asset values, uh, and and not necessarily an increase in in commodity prices or consumer goods or or what is your take? Where, where do you think we're going to go? And the reason I ask is because you know a, a lot of people are buying bonds as a, a treasuries as a safe haven, treasuries and gold. 
uh, of the two, uh, is there a place in your portfolio for to be long U.S. Treasuries? And let's say uh, long-term Treasuries, not short-term Treasuries. I would not own long-term treasuries. I know the, the market disagrees with me right now. I don't mm-hmm. like to own a financial asset where you know that there's endless, huge supply coming. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, a, it's a market with huge price distortions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the Fed's balance sheet goes to $10 trillion the next cycle. In that environment, I, I want to own hard assets. I, I want to be <laughs> light of financial assets. Um, and that view could change as we see this unfold. But I sure. think the Fed's not going to have any choice but to aggressively expand its balance sheet. Uh, and and at some point, there'll be a crisis of confidence in financial assets. I fear. I hope I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. I, I hope I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. I hope you're wrong. Uh, everybody in their right mind hopes you're wrong. But, Doug, it's yeah. because of the uh, of what we see and, and the policies, the Keynesian economic policies, endless amounts of credit debt-based money that has caused us to go to gold and silver and other hard assets. Uh, so with just a minute left here, or 30 seconds or so, we get a rate cut tomorrow, and if so, uh, what will it be? 25 basis points or 50? Well, I think 50 basis points would be reckless. So mm-hmm. uh, I think 25 is, is not prudent, but I'm assuming 25, and it'll be interesting to see if, if the Fed tries to talk the market's expectations down. To try mm-hmm. to say, wait, we're we're data dependent here. We're not necessarily starting a rate cut cycle, because the market's already built in multiple rate cuts. Yeah, and, and the data does not support that. So if the yeah. Fed wants to be data dependent, they're go- they're going to have to try to convince the markets to not be, you know, to discount so many cuts. Right. Well, once that stock market starts to tank, though, uh, we'll see if uh, if Chairman Powell changes his language. We'll see what happens, but. Uh, I want to thank you so much, Doug, for being with us. It's really a pleasure having you with us. Your insights are very valuable. Uh, and, uh, folks, you should go to the McElvaney website uh, to uh, tune in to all and, and, and uh, take advantage of all that Doug provides because he provides a wealth of information. And it's, and it's free, actually. So uh, I would suggest strongly that um, my listeners go there. So thanks again, Doug, for being with us. Well, folks, next week uh, we're going to have uh, John Williams who's been warning about hyperinflation for the longest time. His view is that we're going to see a weaker dollar, a dollar that loses its, uh, its value in the, mar- in the global marketplace. Chris Taylor of Great Bear will be with me. One of the most exciting new gold discoveries that I've followed for some time in Red Lake, District of Ontario. And hopefully Michael Oliver will be with us as well. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 